Just a real quick word and then we'll get started. This is part two of Wild Bill's story. In part one, we covered Hickok's childhood, his time in Bleeding, Kansas, as well as his first known gunfight with David McCandless, his service with the Union during the war, and the famous duel with Davis Tut. If you haven't already, please give episode one a listen. Link in the show notes. All right, with that out of the way, let's get it going. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. If you'll recall, we left off with Hickok killing his friend-turned-enemy, Davis Tut. Now, that shootout occurred on July 21st, 1865. Like I said in part one, Hickok was arrested and charged with murder, but ultimately acquitted. Not everybody was happy with this verdict, yet despite public backlash, Hickok did stick around Springfield for a while and even unsuccessfully ran for town marshal in September of that same year. Once the election was over, I guess Hickok felt like it was time to move on, so he bid Springfield adieu and headed west back to his old stomping grounds in Kansas. Fort Riley, Kansas, to be exact. Now, there are some claims that Bill became a U.S. Deputy Marshal while there at Fort Riley, but while there are documents stating he was recommended for the job, there's nothing showing that he actually worked in such an official capacity upon arrival. What we do know is that he was contracted out by a Captain R.B. Owen, in March of 1866 to, quote, hunt up public property for 125 bucks a month, which is a little over 2300 in today's money. Public property, in this case, referred to the stolen mules and horses belonging to the army, as well as human deserters who likewise belong to the army. What's that line from Full Metal Jacket? Your soul may belong to Jesus, but your ass belongs to me. And evidently, Hickok did track down many a deserter. Now, these next three years of Bill's life were his frontier scouting years. This is when he became acquainted with George Custer, renewed and deepened his friendship with Buffalo Bill Cody, and became known as somewhat of an Indian fighter. And yeah, he would eventually and officially become a U.S. Deputy Marshal. It was all sort of interwoven. When he wasn't scouting or guiding for the army, he could be found chasing down horse thieves or deserters or even arresting illegal timber cutters in his capacity as deputy. A job that saw him not only there in Kansas, but neighboring territories as well. He was also said to do a little bit of trapping in his spare time, some hide hunting, and of course, a whole lot of gambling. It appears that he would spend the majority of his free time split between the towns of Leavenworth, Junction City, and Ellsworth. There in Ellsworth, Hickok would stay with a lady known as Indian Annie, a fortune teller who lived in a small shack attached to the rear of the Grand Central Hotel. You'll hear the occasional reference that she and Bill were married and that they even had a child together, but neither claim is proven. Hickok certainly had a few violent engagements with the hostiles during his time as a scout, most notably, it seems, with the Cheyenne. But how much of this so-called Indian fighting he engaged in, I can't say for sure. In the words of author Joseph Rosa, quote, The legend built around Wild Bill's scouting days would fill volumes. What truth there is in a majority of instances has been lost and important dates and other information have been carelessly discarded in favor of the sensational. End damn quote. And there you have it. Uh, I think that's not only a great summation of Haycock's days as a scout, but his Civil War service as well. So if it seems like I'm being vague or rushing through certain chapters of Wild Bill's life, it's not intentional. You know, I'd be wasting your time and mine if I just blindly recounted each and every fanciful adventure Hickok was alleged to have taken part in, many of which, by the way, are just laughable. Give you a great example. 
You may find references to Hickok participating in the Battle of Washita in November of 1868. This is when Custer and his men attacked a Cheyenne village under the leadership of Black Kettle near present-day Cheyenne, Oklahoma. According to the always entertaining, if not factual, James W. Buell, Hickok and Buffalo Bill Cody fought their way through 50 warriors until Wild Bill was able to get close enough to personally dispatch Black Kettle with a flick of his bowie knife. Cool story, bro. Only problem is Hickok wasn't even there, nor was he involved in that battle in any way, shape, or form. You know, the more I do this podcast, the more I'm starting to think that certain people have a different definition of the word history than I do, or at least a different uh, expectation. When I start looking into a guy like Hickok, I'm not disappointed when I find out that he didn't shoot lightning bolts out of his ass or that he wasn't eight feet tall. I like the fact that he was fully human, just a man, just like me and you. You know, not 100% good or 100% bad. A flawed human just trying to live his life and figure shit out just like the rest of us. Hickok's life was truly remarkable. It's interesting. The events that we can confirm, you know, the proven activities and adventures, those are plenty entertaining enough for me without having to buy into the myth. All right, I'm getting sidetracked. My bad. And like I said, Hickok was not at the Battle of Washita, but he did scout for General Custer. Although, despite the legend, there is no evidence that he was chief of scouts. He was just a regular old scout. But he did make a favorable impression on Custer. And we know from the last episode that he definitely made a favorable impression on Mrs. Custer, if you know what I mean. But as for George Armstrong, he had this to say in 1874 about Hickok. Quote, Among the white scouts were numbered some of the most noted in their class. The most prominent man among them was Wild Bill. A strange character, just the one which a novelist might gloat over. He was a plainsman in every sense of the word, yet unlike any other of his class. Whether on foot or on horseback, he was one of the most perfect types of physical manhood I ever saw. Of his courage, there could be no question. It has been brought to the test on too many occasions for there to be a doubt. His skill in the use of rifle and pistol was unerring, while his deportment was exactly the opposite of what might be expected from a man of his surroundings. It was entirely free from all bluster and bravado. He seldom spoke of himself unless requested to do so. And many are the personal quarrels which he has checked among his companions by his simple announcement that this has gone on far enough. If need be, followed by the ominous warning that when persisted in or renewed, the quarreler must settle with me. Wild Bill is anything but a quarrelsome man, yet no one but himself can enumerate the many conflicts in which he has been engaged and which have almost invariably resulted in the death of his adversary. I have a personal knowledge of at least half a dozen men whom he has at various times killed, one of these being at the time a member of my command. Others have been severely wounded, yet he always escaped unhurt. End quote. And the guy Custer was speaking of just then that was under his command, um, we'll discuss him coming up here in a little bit. Now, Hickok would get into a bit of a hairy situation involving some Cheyenne warriors in February of 1869. While delivering dispatches between Fort Wallace and Fort Lyon in southeastern Colorado, Hickok got into a running fight with several warriors, one of which was able to get close enough to stick old Bill in the leg with a lance. Luckily, he was able to get away, but was found the next morning near Fort Lyon, horseless and half-rose, dragging his bum leg behind him and using that broken lance as sort of a cane. And thus ended the scouting days of Wild Bill Hickok. Not sure if it was due to that close call or just other opportunities coming his way. He would be on the men for a brief period, but soon received a letter from home. 
His mother was seriously ill and requested his presence. And dutifully, Bill came a-running. Or limping, I should say. One of the deadliest and famous shootists of the West, now just a returning son, coming home to see Mama. The trip to Illinois would only last a few weeks, but while there in Troy Grove, Bill rolled up his sleeves and helped out with the farming. He also came bearing gifts for his mother, although other family members would later recall that they had wished he had given her money instead. Something she actually needed. I don't suppose Mrs. Hickok cared one way or the other, though. I imagine she was just glad to see her prodigal son, if only for a moment. Returning to Kansas, Bill headed to the town of Hayes, where he found himself elected both as town marshal and the sheriff of Ellis County, where Hayes was located. Now, Hayes was a pretty rough town, in no small part due to Fort Hayes being just a mile away. Them soldier boys stationed there were under military command, of course, but they still weren't exactly choir boys when they came to town for a little bit of R&R. And they weren't even the roughest element. By the time Hickok pinned on a badge, Hayes was sort of a headquarters and setting off point for hide hunters. And you know how they be. It was also a terminus for the railroad, which meant you had the usual types that would follow the ever westward expanding line. Pimps, whores, gamblers, con artists, you name it. According to one resident, the so-called Sodom of the Plains boasted of, quote, 22 saloons, three dance halls, one little grocery and one clothing store. We did not think anything of having one or two dead men in the streets nearly every morning. Some of them were soldiers from the fort. There was no law except the law of the six shooter, end quote. And in such a wild environment, it should come as no surprise that Hickok would kill two men in just his first month of official duty. The first was a guy by the name of Bill Mulvey. He got drunker than Cooter Brown and took to running amok in the main thoroughfare, firing off his gun and terrorizing the townsfolk. When somebody tried to warn him that maybe he should take a chill pill because, you know, Hickok is the new law in town, Mulvey said that he'd shoot him too should he dare show his face. And true to his word, when Hickok arrived on the scene, Mulvey leveled a rifle towards the lawman. The quick-thinking Wild Bill motioned behind the inebriated troublemaker, acting as if he was talking to someone else. Don't shoot him in the back, he's drunk. Mulvey spins around to address the mysterious interloper to his rear, and then when he turns back to Hickok, bam. Wild Bill sends around straight through the man's temple. Court adjourned. Maybe. I mean, there are two sides to every story, right? There's another version, of course there is, that simply has Mulvey going for his gun when Hickok attempted to disarm him. And in a Hayes paper, it was reported that Bill shot the man twice, once in the neck and once in the lungs, and he was still alive when the paper was printed. Now, there's no dispute on whether or not Hickok killed Mulvey, but I guess the circumstances are in question. Next up on the chopping block, you had another local hellraiser named Samuel Strawhun, who the good people of Hayes had been trying to get shut of for quite a while. It seems that Strawhun and a bunch of his buddies were at John Bitter's beer saloon one night raising all kinds of hell and having a good time doing so. Evidently, they would all crowd around the bar yelling, beer, beer, beer. And just as soon as the stressed out bartender could fill one mug, there'd be several more empty ones placed in front of him. And then these rowdy cowpokes began taking the glasses outside to an empty lot. It weren't too long before the barkeep ran out of mugs altogether and called in Hickok, asking him if he'd pretty please go retrieve his beer tines, which the marshal did, walking back inside the saloon with two handfuls of empty mugs. When Strawhun saw this, he threatened to shoot the next man who tried to interfere with his good time. He then made the fatal mistake of picking up a mug and moving it in a threatening manner toward Hickok a blunder that caused Wild Bill to put a bullet in the man's head, sending him to that great beer garden in the sky. 
No word on how the mug fared. Sounds a little, uh, I don't know, extreme. But there was an inquest the next morning and the killing was deemed justifiable homicide. As I touched on a minute ago, this straw hun guy really was a menace there in Hayes. Still, though, it should go without saying at this point that Hickok wasn't shy about pulling the trigger. Some I will touch on more here in just a bit. Now, these are the only two civilians that Bill killed there in Hayes, but apparently there were more than a few attempts on the lawman's life. More than once, Hickok was fired upon from the shadows, the bullets narrowly missing him. This caused him to take certain precautions. Hickok began walking in the middle of the street as he patrolled, never getting too close to dark alleys. When he walked inside an establishment like the beer hall I just mentioned, he'd place his back to the bar, never standing in one place too long, never allowing anybody to come up behind him. Now, when Hickok was appointed, it was through a special election. There would be a more formal one held on November 2nd, 1869, just a little over two months later. And in this election, Hickok lost his job as sheriff to his own deputy. And although he would stick around Hayes for a little bit, his time there as an official arm of the law was over when he left in January of 1870. Bill then drifted on over to Topeka, where he got himself into some hot water. Evidently, the people of Topeka frown upon whipping another grown man's ass in the middle of the street, which it seems is exactly what Hickok did. Now, I'm short on details with this one other than someone insulted Bill and he knocked the guy on his ass. He would be fined $5 for, quote, striking straight out from the shoulder and consequently hitting a man, end quote. And I love how specific that is. Why not just say he got into a fist fight or, you know, assault or something like that? Hey, you better stop talking about my mama or I will strike out straight from my shoulder and consequently punch you in your big stupid mouth. It appears during this period that Hickok split his time between Topeka and Junction City, Gambling, I'm sure, but also possibly doing a little bit more U.S. Deputy Marshal work as he was issued at least one subpoena to serve in March of 1870. Three months later, in June, Bill headed on down to Sherman, Texas, where he made a brief appearance in Colonel Ginger's circus, quitting after just one performance. Unfortunately, I was not able to find out exactly what the performance was or why Hickok called it quits. If I were a betting man, I'd say he was likely putting on a shooting exhibition of some sort. And how about the name Colonel Ginger? You just know there was some shady shit going down at Colonel Ginger's circus after hours. July of 1870 once again found Hickok back in Hayes, either fully as a civilian or a deputy U.S. Marshal, but not an official Hayes lawman. And it's there that he killed yet again. This time a Medal of Honor recipient, the soldier that Custer wrote about that was under his command. The fight occurred on the night of July 17th at Tommy Drum Saloon, and once again, the legend rears its ugly head. One story goes that it was Hickok facing off alone against 15 troopers of the 7th Cavalry, led by none other than Tom Custer, George Armstrong's brother. Wild Bill held his own at first, but before too long, the men began pummeling him so bad that he pulled out his guns, killing several of them. This, of course, is not true. In fact, the fight only involved Hickok and two soldiers. Privates John Kyle and Jerry Lonegren, who, for whatever reason, decided to jump Hickok there at the bar. Probably had something to do with Wild Bill's winning personality. Uh, no, nobody actually knows for sure. Could have simply just been a bad turn of cards mixed with too much whiskey. The closest thing I could find to a motive was that one of the men, Lonegren, took a, quote, drunken umbrage at Hickok's hair, end quote. Whatever the case, they both came at Bill in a rush. 
Lonegren grabbed Hickok and pinned him to the floor, leaving room for Kyle to rush in with a revolver, which he quickly placed against Bill's head, pulling the trigger. Click. Misfire. This stroke of good luck gave Bill enough time to wiggle around and pull out a pistol of his own, firing it blindly behind him, striking Kyle in the wrist and stomach with a third round catching Lonegren in the knee. They both released Hickok and he fled, assuming, probably correctly, that more soldiers would soon join in on the fight. Now, Kyle was the one who had earned the Medal of Honor when, a year prior, he and two other troopers were attacked by a larger bunch of Cheyenne dog soldiers. Private Kyle helped to save the day, and he was, unquestionably, a brave soldier. Sadly, the rest of the man's life was a mess. He had deserted several times, been court-martialed, and was even wanted by the law under a different name. And he would die of his wounds that next day. As for the other trooper, he was equally as troubled. Lonegren survived the bullet to the knee, but several months later was court-martialed for an altogether different incident and sent to Leavenworth Prison. Now, on that night in question, legend has it that Hickok posted himself up at the Hayes City Boot Hill, looking to sell his life dearly should the rest of the 7th Cav come calling. There's also rumors that General Sheridan put out a dead or alive order on Hickok, but I'm not sure how true that is. He would never get arrested for this shooting, and as far as I know, there wasn't even any charges brought up against him. At least not that I could find. That said, his movements following the Hayes incident are kind of a mystery. He returned to Topeka, where he likely wintered, spending time with Buffalo Bill and his wife. He would then head to Junction City in January of 1871, where he was seen putting on a number of marksmanship demonstrations, shooting everything from quail and rats in the stable yards to half dollars. By March or April, Hickok made his way to Fort Harker, Kansas, where he received news of a job offer. The position of marshal at a little town known as Abilene for a whopping $150 a month plus 25% of all fines imposed. Now, if you're not familiar with Abilene, it was the destination for all them cattle herds coming up out of Texas. You see, back in those days, there was no way to ship cattle directly out of the Lone Star State. The ranchers had to drive their herds north to the nearest railheads like Abilene in order to sell them. You had other cow towns pop up later like Newton and Dodge City. But Abilene, also known as the Queen of the Cowtowns, was the first. By 1867, the stockyards there in Abilene shipped 35,000 head of cattle. And by 1871, more than 5,000 cowboys herded an estimated 600 to 700,000 head of cattle up to the Kansas railheads. As you can probably deduce, this means that during the peak cattle season, Abilene was filled to overflowing with God only knows how many rowdy cowpokes. Young men who had just spent months on the trail without so much as seeing a woman, nor a drink of whiskey, and they were all ready to head to town and catch venereal diseases. Now, to be fair, your average Texas cowboy didn't mean no harm. Hell, most of them were still kids. They might get a little loud when they're in town, but they weren't going to hurt nobody, especially not no innocent woman or child. And it was Hickok's job to see that things stayed that way. He wasn't necessarily there to clean up the town or to stop anybody from making poor personal life choices. He was only responsible for the protection of Abilene citizenry and their property. And one such way of ensuring this was to keep the businesses that catered to the cowboys on the other side of the tracks, literally. He also posted up notices barring firearms within city limits, something that he also did back there in Hayes. And that's an interesting little side note right there. Something a lot of people don't realize. Uh, I guess there's a big misconception that in the old West towns, everyone was just walking around armed to the teeth. We could probably thank the movies for that little myth. 
Truth is, most of your settlements back then had laws far more stringent than we have even today, at least where I live. All right, back to Hickok. Now, if keeping all them cowboys in check wasn't enough, how about the idea that Hickok's predecessor, Marshal Tom Bear River Smith, had not only been murdered in the line of duty, but decapitated as well? If that gives you any idea what sort of job Wild Bill had in store for him. And for all this, he only had three deputies. Still, though, Bill hit the ground running. He was sworn in on April 15th of 1871 and wasted no time in letting it be known that troublemakers can leave on the eastbound train, the westbound train, or go north in the morning. North in the morning, of course, being a reference to Boot Hill. And if you're not familiar, Boot Hill is the name given to local cemeteries where men who quote-unquote died with their boots on were buried. In other words, men who perished in violent confrontations, mostly gunfights. And interestingly enough, the first known Boot Hill was in Hayes, where Hickok was previously employed. A Boot Hill that he himself made more than one deposit in. Now, people had some mixed opinions of Hickok as a marshal. He would gain quite a few enemies after shutting down all the whorehouses per city council orders. And as such, he continued taking the same precautions that he practiced back there in Hayes. He was careful where he placed his back. He was always on guard, always wary of shadows. One friend, upon paying a visit to the little cottage that Hickok shared with one of his lady friends, was surprised to see that Bill slept not only with his revolvers, but a shotgun as well. A shotgun he placed in his lap even when he took a shave at the barbershop, his eyes wide open and scanning the streets in front of him for any sign of danger. And make no mistake about it, Hickok's reputation had preceded him. If you'll recall from part one, Bill was made famous back four years prior when that Harper's article was published. And since then, Hickok had made his bones there in Hayes where he killed at least three men. And he would kill yet again there in Abilene. Remember, like I was saying, your average cowboy was okay. Wild, but no criminals. Hell, they were just working boys. The problem lay with the other types who flocked to such towns. Guys an awful lot like Hickok himself. Gamblers and such. And then you had your legit killers. Men like John Wesley Harden, who claimed to have backed old Wild Bill down right there in Abilene. Story goes that Hickok noticed that Harden, then just an 18-year-old, going by the nickname of Arkansas, was armed, so he told him to turn over his firearms. John Wesley did so, carefully removing both pistols and holding them out to Hickok with the butts forward. And then at the last second and with a flick of the wrist, he performed a road agent spin, thumbing back both hammers and pointing the barrels straight at the marshal. Hickok, according to Harden, then said, quote, You are the gamest and quickest boy I ever saw. Let us compromise this matter and I will be your friend. Let us go in here and take a drink, as I want to talk to you and give you some advice. End quote. Did this really happen? Likely not. And I'm not just saying that because I don't think Harden could have gotten the slip on Hickok, or because I don't think Hickok would have backed down. Remember, Wild Bill was just a man, and Hardin, despite his young age, was already a stone-cold killer and could have murdered Hickok in a heartbeat, given the chance, and then gone on to sleep like a baby. The problem with this story is mostly that it originates from Hardin. He wrote of it in his book some 20-plus years after the fact, long after Hickok was dead. And if you've never read Hardin's book, well, let's just say it's got quite a few other distortions of truth as well. And I'm not alone in this sentiment. Okay, Hardin biographers Parsons and Brown both think the story of him backing down Hickok is bullshit. 
as does the foremost Wild Bill expert, the guy I keep quoting, Joseph Rosa. Same thing goes for Hardin's claims that he and Hickok became friends and went whoring and drinking together. While I'm sure Bill certainly knew of this dangerous kid they called Arkansas, there's just no evidence that the two were ever friends. Now, this was around the same time that John Wesley supposedly shot that old boy for snoring too loud. Also likely a myth, by the way. He did kill a man in that hotel room. That is an undisputed fact. Just probably not for snoring. And for what it's worth, Jip Clements, Hardin's own cousin, also denied the snoring rumor. What's not denied by anybody, however, is that John Wesley Hardin promptly got the hell out of Abilene after that shooting. Like, rot after. If I'm not mistaken, he even climbed out the window. And even by Hardin's own admission, he left as to avoid any trouble with Hickok. Which is just as well, seeing as how Hickok had his hands full with another Texan. This one by the name of Phil Coe. Now, Coe's an interesting guy, one of the many people on my never-ending list of future episode topics. Born in Gonzales in 1839, Coe went on to serve in the Confederacy during the war and then possibly saw action down in Mexico as a soldier of fortune under Emperor Maximilian. He then kind of drifted and began earning a living as a gambler. Depending on what descriptions of the man you choose to believe, he was either a, quote, quiet and inoffensive man or a red-mouthed, bawling, thug-plug-ugly. Coe was also good friends with another gunman I've briefly covered before named Ben Thompson, and in May of 1871, the two became co-owners of the Bull's Head Saloon there in Abilene. Now, I have also talked about the Bull's Head previously, I think way back on that episode I did on John Wesley Harden. Evidently, the saloon was called the Bull's Head because they had a large mural or painting on the outside of the establishment depicting a cartoonishly large erect bull's, you know, tallywhacker. As you can imagine, this image was getting all them Christian townsfolk of Abilene all up in a tether, so Marshal Wild Bill asked the boys, Coe and Thompson, to get rid of it. They refused, so Hickok stood by with the shotgun and supervised the painting over of the phallus, much to the irritation of the saloon owners. Legend has it that Coe and Thompson then approached Hardin, this is while he was still in town, and asked him to kill the lawman, saying that Hickok doesn't do nothing but pick on Texans. To Hardin's credit, he replied with something along the lines of, if Hickok needs killing, then why don't you do it yourself? Remember, this is all coming from Hardin, so huge grain of salt. I will say one thing, though. It's apparent in his writings that he had a good deal of respect for Hickok. And if the two were not friends, as I believe, then at very least, John Wesley definitely wanted to be friends with Wild Bill. Now, as far as Phil Coe goes, much like with Tut, nobody knows for sure what caused the hatred between him and Hickok. Some say the marshal was spreading rumors that Phil's games of chance were crooked and that he was swindling hardworking cowboys. Others think it was a woman, again, imagine that, a lady of the night by the name of Jessie Hazel to whom both men were smitten. Whatever started things off, by the fall of 1871, Coe let it be known that he intended to kill Hickok before the first frost. He also began bragging that he could shoot the eyes out of a crow. To which Bill replied, Did the crow have a pistol? Was he shooting back? I will be. That's the quote, by the way, that I was referring to in part one when I was talking about targets shooting back. Now, the night in question, when things finally came to a head between Coe and Hickok, was on October 5th, 1871. And you better believe there are two sides to this story. Boy, are there. Okay, first goes as follows. An angry, drunken mob got themselves worked up over something, as angry mobs are wont to do, and they began marching through the streets, raising hell. 
They made their way to the Alamo Saloon, where it just so happens Phil Coe was waiting. He pulled out a revolver, something he was not legally supposed to have on his person, and fired off a shot into the air. Why, I'm not sure. I don't know if he was trying to scare the mob away or if this is just his way of joining in on the fun. Hickok hears the shot and comes a-running, his good buddy Mike Williams following closely behind. Bill spots Coe with the revolver still in his hand and demands to know what the shooting was about. Phil, not one to back down, explains that he had fired at a stray dog. Something, interestingly enough, that Hickok was actually paid to do when he first took the job as marshal. So maybe that was a little bit of a dig at Wild Bill. I don't know. Hickok cuts Phil off and addresses the mob, telling them to disarm, disassemble, and get the hell gone. No word on how far he and Co. were from each other, but it's a chaotic scene. You know, scores of angry drunks yelling, closing in quick, Hickok trying to keep one eye on them and another on Co., an accomplished killer in his own right who, remember, still had a fucking gun in his hand. All of a sudden, for whatever reason, Hickok fires. If this account is correct, then much like with McCandless, I don't know what Bill saw that made him pull the trigger first. Maybe a flicker or a twitch at Coe's eyes. Maybe Coe raised his revolver. I don't know. But while Bill did fire both of his guns first, and the timing could not have been any worse. It was at the exact same moment that his friend Mike came running up, and he, not Coe, caught both rounds. In a flash, Hickok thumbs back the hammers and sends two more rounds downrange, these finding the intended target, Phil Coe. But of course, it was too late. Mike Williams, his friend, lay dying. And it was all Hickok's fault. By the way, this Williams guy, he was not one of Wild Bill's deputies, as is commonly believed. He was, however, on record as working at the jail earlier that year. On this particular night, though, he was simply there as a friend. Now for the second version. This one also centers around a mob, just in a more lighthearted, festive way. Story goes that they were running up and down the streets of Abilene, Philco among them, catching people and lifting them above their shoulders until the victims agreed to buy them drinks. They even heaved Wild Bill's massive frame up until he good-naturedly agreed to buy a round. The drinks came with a warning, though. Keep things within the order of the law, or else. I added that or else. Uh, Some tells me that Hickok didn't need to give such disclaimers. Now, with this version, you still have Coe firing off that shot outside the Alamo Saloon, and he still claims to have been shooting at a stray dog when Hickok shows up. The main difference is this time it's Coe that throws down first. He and Wild Bill have words, and Coe fires off two rounds, one of them passing harmlessly through Bill's coat and the other landing between his legs. Hickok fired back, and he did not miss. Remember, you've still got the loud, drunken crowd, and Hickok was all alone, no deputies back in his play. He had also just killed a man, so he was all keyed up, and tensions are extremely high. As soon as Coe drops to the ground, clutching his guts, Hickok, out of the corner of his eye, sees somebody else emerge from the shadows with a gun in their hand. Bill quickly turns and instinctively fires, shooting the unknown assailant. Only problem was, you guessed it, it was his friend Mike Williams. He had come to help Hickok, and I guess Bill just sort of shot out of reflex. Now, which version is the most accurate of what actually occurred? That's up for you to decide. There's even another account of Hickok pulling out two Derringers and shooting Coe in the back. The result was the same. Both Phil Coe and Mike Williams were dead, and Hickok was pissed. Story goes that he tearfully picked up his friend, carrying him into the Alamo and laying him down on a billiards table where he soon gave up the ghost. Full of rage, Bill then rushed out, going into every single saloon and gambling hall still open, and shutting them the hell down. 
sending everybody home and bashing in a few heads in the process and effectively turning Abilene into a damn ghost town within an hour. Uh, Just to be clear, Philco did not immediately die when he was shot by Hickok. I'm just adding that in case I uh, inadvertently made it sound that way. He would linger in extreme pain for about a day or two before finally expiring. And word is that the killing of Mike Williams really did a number on Hickok, that he was never truly the same afterwards. Not only would Mike be the last man that Bill would ever kill, but his time as a lawman was quickly coming to an end. All total, he'd spend about eight months in Abilene as Marshall. As I alluded to earlier, the cattle herds would soon shift further south to Newton, uh, thus depriving Abilene of all the money pouring in from them thirsty cowboys. And according to some sources, without that money, the city council could no longer afford an expensive lawman like Hickok. He was soon replaced by somebody willing to do the same job for a fraction of the money. Just one quick note on Hickok's time as a marshal. With damn near every one of these killings, there's at least one account that has Bill firing first, you know, depriving his opposition of even the chance of defending themselves. We saw it with that first killing of McCandless. It was alleged in his killing of Tut. And remember the guy with that beer mug? Hickok put a round through his head lickety split, and nobody even pretends that he had a gun. And now you've got Phil Coe. It does seem, to me at least, that while Bill could be excessive at times, a little heavy-handed, maybe not the type of person you'd want serving and protecting your community, at least not nowadays, right? I mean, I certainly wouldn't. We, normal people, civilians, have rights too, and the police can't just be judge, jury, and executioner. That said, different time and different place, right? In Hickok's day, there was no police academy, no formal training. If you had a rough town that you wanted cleaned up, you damn well better hire somebody rough enough to handle the job. Oftentimes, this came at a cost. Hickok was rough, absolutely. But hell, he was an angel compared to some other Old West lawmen. Guys who, at times, found themselves locked up in their own jails or hanging from a noose at the hands of an angry lynch mob. Now, I ain't trying to say anything right now. It was just something I was pondering. Another thing, I've made more than a few references, both in this episode and part one, of Hickok utilizing a Navy Colt revolver. Was that really his gun of choice? One thing to keep in mind, while Bill was born in 1837, the evolution of firearms would change rapidly in just his lifetime. I mean, as a kid, Hickok likely only had access to old flintlock shotguns. By 1857, when he was in Kansas, it was said that he was shooting oyster cans at 100 yards away with a 44 caliber Colt Dragoon. But by the 1860s, we have photographic evidence showing Hickok carrying 36 caliber Navy Colt 1851 revolvers. One at first and then a pair. By the late 1860s, rumor has it that he took to carry an ivory-handled Navy Colts. Not too unbelievable considering his fashion sense. His buddy Texas Jack gave him a matching pair of 44 caliber number no. 3 Smith & Wesson revolvers in 1874, but sources claim that by the time Hickok arrived in Deadwood, he was still sporting navies, only by then they were 38 caliber converted to accept cartridges. So I think the consensus is clear that he did indeed favor the Navy Colt. We also know that he carried a shotgun on occasion, you know, whenever his guts told him to. And at the time of his death, he also owned an 1870 model 50 caliber Springfield rifle. And just in case all that wasn't enough, they say Hickok also had a pair of 41 caliber Williamson dual ignition Derringers that he would carry in his vest. You know, just to keep people honest. So there you have it as far as Hickok's armory went. All right, now back to the story. 
Despite killing his friend Williams and despite being let go from his marshalling job, it wasn't all doom and gloom for Hickok there in Abilene. For it was there that he'd meet his future wife, Agnes Thatcher Lake. Originally from France, though reared in Cincinnati, Agnes Louise Messman ran away while a teenager to join the circus. Or a circus clown, I should say, by the name of William Lake Thatcher. The two fell in love, got married, and traveled all over, performing and entertaining the masses. Here in the States, Mexico, even Europe. They ended up forming their own little circus, but unfortunately, Mr. Lake Thatcher would be murdered in Missouri in 1869. Undaunted, Agnes carried on. She was apparently one hell of a strong woman, and she took over the reins of the entire operation, running everything and continuing to tour. She'd bring her traveling troop to Abilene in 1871, and that's when she met Wild Bill. Now, despite a clear attraction, the two would not get married just yet. For the time being, they'd part ways as friends, but continue a steady correspondence that allowed Bill to keep to his bachelor ways. Now, following his job as marshal, officially ending on December 13, 1871, Hickok would drift west to Georgetown, Colorado, where he partners up for a little bit with a friend by the name of Colorado, Charlie Utter. More on both Agnes and Utter coming up in a little bit. They both have big roles to play in Hickok's final days. By the summer of 72, Bill is back in Kansas, Kansas City, and is persuaded by a Colonel Sidney Barnett to appear in a so-called Grand Buffalo Chase at Niagara Falls, which he did and which proved to be a financial disaster. But we don't like to talk about that. Uh, not exactly sure what Bill was up to following this brief trip to New York or for a good part of the year 1873. His death was reported numerous times, and he did relish in writing into the newspapers, correcting them of their premature predictions. And he was possibly arrested in Wyoming and charged $50 for assaulting a sheriff. Somebody that went by Wild Bill for sure was. Whether or not this is our Wild Bill, nobody can know. I will say, though, that having already worn the badge, Haycock did not seem the least bit intimidated by current law enforcement officials. By August of 1873, Hickok once again headed east towards New York, this time to perform with his old buddies, Buffalo Bill Cody and Texas Jack Omahundro. Now, this would not be the famous Buffalo Bill Cody Wild West show, the one that Annie Oakley and Sitting Bull were later featured in. That's still a few years to come. This was more just like a play. Cody and Texas Jack had partnered up with famed author Ned Buntline to produce something known as the Scouts of the Prairie. The two frontiersmen, however, could not get along with Buntline, and they soon parted company, entering Wild Bill Hickok. He joined up with the duo in either August or September of 1873, and it was pretty much just them three on stage talking and sharing stories, and every now and then they'd have to pretend to fight off an actor portraying a hostile Native American. And when I say it was horrendous, woo! What I wouldn't give to watch just one performance of The Scouts of the Prairie. You ever watch a movie that's an unintentional comedy? Just so bad it's actually funny? Well, that's exactly what Hickok was now involved in. It weren't meant to be a comedy, but that didn't stop audiences everywhere from laughing their asses off at the scouts turned thespians. And Hickok hated it. Felt like he and the other guys were making fools of themselves, and he was probably correct. He hated everything about it. You know, the bright stage lights just hurt his eyes something fierce. And it wasn't long before Bill began showing his discontent in the form of bullying, believe it or not. Back in those days, they actually used real guns on stage, just with extremely light powder loads. 
Well, Hickok would get bored and disgruntled and start discharging his pistols extremely close to the legs of all the extras, in some cases burning them pretty badly. Got to the point that they had to go complain to Cody about the problem and he and Hickok had a pretty good argument over it. Still, though, the money was good. Damn good. Bill was making more than he ever had or ever will make again, so he stuck it out as long as he could, which only proved to be about six months. Most of their performances were done there in New York City, by the way, with just a short tour along the East Coast just to kind of round things off. And despite the boredom, Hickok was able to find a little excitement on that tour in Pennsylvania. It seems they stopped at a particular hotel where the manager was worried about some local thugs possibly causing trouble. He asked Cody, Texas Jack, and Hickok to pretty please come and go out of a side door as to avoid any sort of confrontation. A request that they complied with, at least at first. It soon got to be too much for Hickok, all that sneaking around. One night, he decided to go downstairs to a billiards room where the locals had congregated, just to see how tough they really was. One of them old boys put his hands on Hickok's shoulder and called him Buffalo Bill, said he had been looking for him. Hickok corrects the guy as to his actual name, and the man calls Bill a liar. An insult that Hickok answers by knocking the fool on his ass. He then picks up a chair and proceeds to beat the hell out of the other so-called tough guys, about four or five all total. And Hickok was next seen returning to his quarters, whistling a little happy tune. Now, despite this bit of excitement, Hickok's attitude had not improved. He had started drinking initially before each show just to calm his nerves. And as time progressed, he took to drinking during each show, a habit he would continue for the rest of his time there in the Big Apple. And of course, when he had any free time, he was gambling heavily and losing heavily. He may have been earning more money than ever before, but like many of us are prone to do, he simply pissed it away. About the only good thing that came out of his time there in the big city was reuniting with his lady friend Agnes Lake. Not sure what all the lovebirds got up to, but the attraction was still certainly there, and once again, the two would keep in close correspondence. Finally, in March of 1874, while Bill would call it quits as far as the acting went, the official excuse was that General Phil Sheridan needed him to drop everything and report immediately to Fort Laramie, although no such orders have ever been discovered. And, per Joseph Rosa, Hickok's movements after leaving New York have so far eluded the most diligent research. It does appear that he may have spent time in Denver and Cheyenne before visiting Nebraska. He did some guiding for wealthy English noblemen, and he finally began seeing a doctor about his increasingly troublesome eye problems. The so-called affliction of the eyes, as one newspaper reported, that caused Hickok to begin wearing tinted glasses. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to what exactly was wrong with Hickok's eyes, but nobody seems to know for sure. When he was performing back east with Cody, there is said to have been an issue or an accident with a stage light that had exploded very close to his eyes. But the general consensus seems to be that it was some sort of progressive disease. Some say it was glaucoma, while others say it was a blindness brought on from syphilis. That is possible, and let's face it, Hickok did get around when it came to the ladies. I'd bet every penny I own that if he did not have syphilis, he at least had some STD. Also, a very likely cause of his problems could have been something called trachoma, a bacteria that infects the eyes and leads to a scarring of the inner eyelid, obviously a very painful development that then causes a breakdown of the outer surface of the cornea and eventually blindness. There's another theory, however, the idea that Hickok was using his eyesight as an excuse 
and that the real issue was that he simply lost his nerve. Now, I don't think there's much to this at all. Uh, Once again, not because I think Hickok was some sort of ultimate badass or anything. It's just because, A, there's no proof whatsoever that he had lost his nerve. And B, the idea that he was suffering from some malady of the eyes is about as proven as anything can be proven. Dozens upon dozens of sources point to it. And finally, other than showing a little bit more maturity in his last few years of life, it does not seem like Hickok really changed the way he carried himself. You know, he didn't shy away from dangerous situations or really alter his habits all that much. As was evidenced in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where Hickok headed to some six-odd months after leaving New York, New York. The city so nice, they named it twice. And it was there in Cheyenne where Bill would once again link up with his old friend, Charlie Utter. Good old Charlie Utter. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's probably because you've seen HBO's Deadwood, where Utter is portrayed by the great Dayton Callie of Sons of Anarchy fame. Now, let me just say I love Dayton and Deadwood. His version of Charlie Utter was phenomenal, just not all that historically accurate. First of all, when Deadwood premiered in 2004, Dayton was 58 years old, two decades older than the real Charlie Utter would have been when he arrived in Deadwood in 1876. Also, the real Charlie Utter was a bit more dapper as far as his attire went. He, like Hickok, sported long flowing hair. He was usually perfectly groomed, wearing fancy buckskins and vests and beaded moccasins, that sort of stuff. And he was very much a clean freak, Charlie Utter, even compared to Wild Bill. It's said that Utter would bathe daily while in Deadwood, something completely unheard of back then. Matter of fact, it was such an anomaly that miners would flock in just to watch the man clean himself simply as a form of entertainment. Where others in Deadwood would just camp out on the ground or in the back of a wagon as Hickok did, Utter had his own fancy tent with rugs and mirrors and combs to brush his hair. He even had a broom in there to keep his tent nice and neat. Don't let appearances fool you, though. Utter was extremely proficient in the backcountry and very capable. A former trapper and prospector, the dude most definitely knew how to take care of himself. Now, I'm not exactly sure when Utter and Hickok first met and became friends. I actually just received an email from listener Clint, who's a direct descendant of Charlie's, and according to him, their family Bible has a story of Utter and Hickok hunting buffalo together. Unfortunately, he has no dates as far as when the two men met either, but it is, according to at least one source I found, a possibility that the two go back all the way to Kansas in the 1850s. Now, in the HBO series Deadwood, Charlie Utter is almost like a caretaker of sorts for Wild Bill, just deeply concerned with his actions, always trying to steer him on the right path. Not sure how true to life that is, but when the two were in Cheyenne, they were said to have been damn near inseparable. Wherever Hickok was, Charlie Utter would be nearby, keeping a close eye on things in case any of Bill's old enemies tried to slide on in. Now, that said, when interviewed years later, Utter would only say that he was simply Bill's friend and that he never acted as any sort of a bodyguard. As to what the two men were doing in Cheyenne in 1874, I can't speak for Charlie Utter, but Hickok was mostly gambling. And by all accounts, badly. Doyle Brunson, he weren't. Now, Cheyenne, only about seven years old at the time that Hickok arrived, had in the past been a pretty rough town. And if Wild Bill had shown up a few years prior, they'd have probably begged him to pin on a badge. By 1874, however, the people of Cheyenne already had them, a tough lawman, a guy by the name of Jeff Carr. They also had them some tough laws, especially when it came to vagrancy. 
Now, vagrancy, by definition, is a state of homelessness without regular employment or income. And various anti-vagrancy laws have been used to exploit the poor and the downtrodden over the years. They've also been used, like in Cheyenne, as an excuse to arrest, fine, or simply run out of town any undesirables, namely gamblers or other people of ill repute that might cause trouble, people like Wild Bill Hickok. At one point, a notice was posted there in Cheyenne listing Hickok by name as a vagrant and ordering him and everybody else on the list to leave town within 24 hours or risk being forcibly ejected. Bill, upon seeing the sign, took his knife to it, cutting it to shreds and stating that he'd leave town when he felt like it. Shortly thereafter, he and the aforementioned local lawman had them a little confrontation. Carr allegedly spotted Bill loitering outside a saloon and called out across the street. Hello, Bill. Guess I'll have to run you out of town soon. To which Hickok coolly replied, Jeff Carr, when I go, you'll go with me. A Cheyenne paper would later report on the incident, also shedding a little bit of light on Hickok's well-being during this time. The article in question read, in part, quote, While Bill seems to have become a very tame and worthless loafer and bummer, our city marshal ordered him out of town by virtue of the provision of the Vagrancy Act only a few months ago. But Bill cordially invited the officer to go to a much warmer climate than this. The write-up also goes on to say, quote, Years ago, before wine and women had ruined his constitution and impaired his faculties, he, Hickok, was more worthy of the fame which he attained on the border. End quote. Man, that wine and women. They'll get you in the end, boy, let me tell you. And they got Hickok. This period of his life there in Cheyenne is said to be his low point, a rock bottom of sorts, according to many historians. Hickok had no viable income, no employment. He drank a lot and he gambled what little money he had away. His eyesight was on the decline and he had even taken to walking with a cane at times due to rheumatism. The cane is kind of cool, though. Uh, it was said to have been made from a billiards cue. And he used it, at least on one occasion, to whack a surly pharaoh dealer upside the head. As far as the vagrancy claims go, this was, in Bill's case, simply a way of labeling him as an undesirable. Hickok was never a vagabond or completely destitute or anything like that. Hell, even with the wine and women, Bill still had him plenty of friends and he was still highly respected in many circles. Still, though, he would be officially charged with vagrancy in June of 1875 and have a warrant issued for his arrest. An arrest that never came, by the way. When the case was to be tried in November, Hickok was nowhere to be found. Once again, for at least the latter part of 1875, nobody knows where exactly the hell Hickok was. He would at times wander in and out of Cheyenne despite the charges, and he likely spent New Year's there, celebrating the centennial. And he was definitely there in Cheyenne in February of 1876 when things started to improve. His long-distance girlfriend, Agnes, showed up. And on March 5th, the couple finally made things official and tied the knot. She was 11 years older than Bill, by the way. He was just 38 years of age when they got married, compared to Agnes being a few months shy of her 50th birthday. Milf. The two would honeymoon in Cincinnati, where Agnes grew up, but Bill's eyes just kept getting worse. He made a brief stop at his mother's home, one last visit, before heading down to St. Louis, where he likely sought medical treatment. He would also end up making several trips to Kansas City, where he had a doctor check out his eyes as well. By March, he was back in Cheyenne, 
and described as being, quote, trifle pell due to a recent illness. He would then soon return to St. Louis, where he began making plans for a much larger trip. His last trip, or so it would turn out. It would be a joint venture with his friend Charlie Utter, bound for a newly formed mining camp up in the Black Hills that people had taken to calling Deadwood. And with that, we're going to go ahead and call it quits for this episode. I thought this was just going to be a two-parter, but I think Hickok's final days there in Deadwood and the aftermath is going to deserve an episode all its own. Uh, you may remember last week I said I'd do these two episodes on Hickok and then put out a little short episode. Well, that might change. I might just go ahead and put out the third installment of the Hickok saga next Wednesday, God willing, and then the short episode after that. So possibly you're going to have four weeks of content back to back to back, and then daddy's going to need a week off to catch his breath. Either way, you're going to want to stay tuned for part three. There's a little tidbit of information concerning Hickok's death that I was not aware of. It actually sort of blew my mind that it's not more well-known, and I'm kind of hoping it blows your mind as well. Big shout-out to everybody on Patreon, including the new arrivals, Nicolee, Dane, and Dookie Rooster. Shout-out and a big thanks to my recent YouTube members, Big Dog, Bart, and John. Joining Patreon and being a YouTube member, by the way, is the only way you can access the older episodes of the Wild West Extravaganza. Shout-out to all you new listeners who discovered the Wild West extravaganza by listening to History Daily. And a huge thank you to all of you who've been supporting the podcast via Buy Me a Coffee. Antonio, Tia, Donnie, everybody else. Y'all are really helping out a lot, and I cannot express how much I truly appreciate it. And if you would like to support the podcast without reaching into your wallet, that's great. You can always tell somebody about the Wild West extravaganza. You like this episode? Share it with somebody. Or you could just leave a review. All right, I guess that's it for this week. Please join me next week for the third installment of the Wild Bill Hickok story. We'll find out what happened when the legend finally arrived in Deadwood. We'll get to the bottom of all the brouhaha surrounding the dead man's hand. And we'll find out if former President Obama and Hickok are really related. Till then, try not to lose your eyesight due to syphilis or get arrested for vagrancy. Adios. Dookie Rooster. <laughs>